beautiful singing this morning. Thank you for all of the musicians who have used your spiritual gift to bless us to sing the gospel of Christ. Uh, thank you for taking the time and all the practice that went into that. It is good to be here. Um, excited to see all the visitors, especially excited to hang out with my son Ethan and my daughter-in-law Allie the last three days, and they're here from Virginia, so be sure to squeeze them on the way out, give them a hug, and it's good to see you guys with us here. We come now to the message of Christmas and the Word of God uh, to have our hearts stirred up by the truth of the Scriptures. We come to hear from God and see what He has to say to us. We've heard the old, old story many times. May the Lord come in power so that we would be stirred up by way of reminder, that we would remember the truths that we hold dear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing together on Christmas Eve. It's a special gift to be here today to worship. Thank you for the great hymns of the faith from decades and decades ago that speak to our heart and help us to set our eyes upon the mystery of the God-man the mystery of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, taking upon flesh and dwelling among us to save us. We're grateful for the new songs as well and all of the, uh, all of the ways your church continues to use her gifts for your glory. We pray now that we would receive this word that would be implanted deep within our hearts and that we would leave changed through your word today. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kids, it's Christmas Eve. Come on. You're a little excited. It's Christmas Eve. You're probably going to get a present or presents today from your parents or loved ones. I know my kids look forward to this time of the year. They generate, at least the younger ones and older ones, generate a list of things that they would like, and it's fun. I mean, we put the, the presents under the tree. Sometimes, I remember, you sneak in, you, you try to maybe discern the shape and the size of the package, maybe feel the weight, shake it a little bit. It's a lot of joy to receive gifts. It's a lot of joy to give gifts, to unwrap these gifts. Moms and dads just love to give gifts to their kids. Our Heavenly Father loves to give the Holy Spirit to His kids. But this morning, as we reflect about gift exchanges, uh, we need to remember and turn to the gift that is the reason that we exchange gifts in the first place. Today, on Christmas Eve, we turn to reflect and, and to remember, and, and I pray that the Holy Spirit 
comes to cause us to rejoice in the gift that God the Father gave, past tense, that He gave to the world. This is no fiction, this is no myth, this is no mindless ritual. We're here to reflect on this gift. Parents, we give, give, we give gifts to our kids because we love them. And God the Father gave a gift to us out of an infinite, an infinite heart of love. He gave specifically with you on His mind. Not a generic gift, but with a name on it. Tagged. He had you on His mind. He had you on His heart. Me and you when He gave this gift. That's incredible. And this gift isn't a Lego set or this gift isn't a new, a new basketball or a new pair of Air Jordans. The gift the Father gave to us was His one and only Son. His one and only Son. And there are no words. We're going to try, but there are no words to express the value and the sacrifice of this gift. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, he says, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So this morning on Christmas Eve, I, I think one verse that captures the indescribable love that gave the gift of Jesus is the text that we should tackle, that we should talk about, that we should expose the truth of this morning. This is the gift that is probably on this planet the most beloved verse in every nation. This is probably the most memorized verse. This is probably the most quoted verse. Even with those of very limited or no knowledge of, of the Bible have managed in our culture with our social media to hear this verse. In fact, today, if you watch the Vikings-Lions game, you will see this verse likely plastered between the goalposts on TV. What is this verse? John 3.16. Of course, it's in the bulletin, so... John 3.16. You've got it memorized. You're going to say it in a different translation. Let's say it together. Out loud, together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And you can probably memorize that in different translations. We've known that since we were little. The love of God, the love of God for sinners like us is the great theme of that verse. And before we even start, I don't want you to check out 
visitors, kids, if you're listening on the live stream today, ask yourself this question. I know, you, I know you've memorized this verse too. But ha- is this verse yours? Have you received the love that this verse expresses? That's the question. Do you know the love of God? And believer, I'm going to ask you a hard question. Are you living right now a life that's consistent with the love of God? Are you living right now in light of the love of God? These are the kinds of questions that we should reflect on before and after we exchange gifts. And certainly as we come to the Word of God. We have to respond to the love of God. Or it's just words on a page. It's just words on a page. In order to respond to the love of God, we've got to realize and we've got to see through the Holy Spirit just how glorious the love of God is. And so we turn to John 3.16 this morning and we're going to look at three aspects of God's love for us that, that really form, I think, the core of the reason we celebrate Christmas in the first place. Three reasons from John 3.16. Number one, let's look at the recipients of God's love. The recipients of this indescribable love. Who receives this love? Everyone look at your text, including kids. It's, by the way, m- many of the passages, if not most of the passages that I'll be using are in your bulletin in the handout. So maybe pull that out and have it with you so you can follow along on some of these cross-references. Who are the recipients of this love? The text says, and it's right there, for God so loved the world. The recipients of God's love is what John calls the world. So in order to understand the wonder of God's love, we've got to understand what John, who wrote the book of John, means by the word world. We've got to. Because some of you are thinking right now, it's His job to love us. God's a loving God. God is love. I mean, we're, we're kind of helpless, cute, relatively cuddly creatures that He made. We're in His image. Let's get some theology behind this. We're created in His image. We ought to be loved. He didn't like the cute and cuddly. We'll go with the image. And so, we're good people. We're good patriots. We help people. We're sincere. Isn't this what God is supposed to do? Love us. That's why we have to unpack what John means by the word world. Now, when John writes the word world, that word doesn't 
typically refer to a number or a quantity of people as if God's love for God so loved the world that that God's love is so majestic it's because of the sheer numbers of people that He has set His love upon. I'm sure there's some truth to that perhaps in a different scripture but not this one. That's not why the so is there. For John, the word world isn't about the quantity of people, but the kind of love. Because world in the book of John, almost without exception, maybe without exception in John's writings, has a connotation not of intrinsic goodness, but of evil and darkness and sin. The word world is the world of darkness that the light of the world broke into. It's the world of darkness. John 3.19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and that men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Or John 7 verse 7 The world cannot hate you but it hates me. That is, the world hates Jesus. The world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil, or 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that's how John uses the word World. And so what's so astounding about God's love is that He loves the world of darkness. That's astounding. And so one theologian says, and I'll explain this, don't worry, don't, don't be lost. God's love towards us, are you ready, is uninfluenced. Let me explain that. Arthur Pink said that. It's uninfluenced. There was nothing whatsoever. I know you think you're pretty, you know, special. But there's nothing whatsoever in the objects of of His love to attract that love or to prompt it as if you are somehow better than the other person that, that has somehow prompted God's love or that He's responding to you. There's nothing beautiful or lovely intrinsic in us that provokes the love of God. The love of God for us is uncaused. There's nothing in us that commended His love for us. In fact, the very opposite is true of the world. It is. There's everything in us to repulse Him. To make Him loathe us. We're sinful. We've broken God's law. We were born and even conceived in our mother's womb with the very nature of hatred towards God. We're corrupt. The curse of Adam has linked us to him and corrupted our hearts. Heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. In us, Psalm 14 and Romans says, dwells no good thing. 
Or Isaiah said it pretty well in Isaiah 64 verse 6. Even my righteous deeds, that is putting your best foot forward on your best day, in your best moment, even your righteous deeds are filthy rags in the sight of the thrice holy God. Isaiah 64 verse 6. Ephesians chapter 2, listen to how Paul describes the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the wrath, dead in trespasses, dominated by sin, dominated by the prince and the power of this air, the devil himself. And if it wasn't for the next two words, we'd be in deep trouble. But God, But God acted in His love. Not after we cleaned ourselves up, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says. So, God loves us not because we're lovable or good. He loves us, and I don't have a good answer for why. But I'll give you the biblical answer. According to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, unmerited favor. (laughs) He sets His love. He chooses to love us. Before we ever had an ounce of love for Him, He loved us. Now, let me give you an illustration. I met my wife... Jody, when we were 18, I met her at Northwestern up in Roseville. I was watching an intramural game and she walked across the gym with the long red hair. And she actually, now I had a halo on, I had broken my neck and I was in a cage. So it worked, you know, it worked for me. But she came and talked to me. And she was beautiful with this lovely laugh and she smelled good and she was so nice. Wow! Two and a half years we were married. Nine kids later, here we are. Here is not how it went in that intramural game at Northwestern. This is how it didn't go. It didn't go this way. I see Jody, and she is really homely. Her head is shaved, and she frowns. She comes up and talks to me, but her breath stinks, and she smells. And she's rude to me. I was rude to her, but she was rude. (laughs) She was rude to me. And here's how it didn't go. After seeing that, I didn't say, hey, would you like to go out? That's how it didn't go. 
But which one of those illustrations best describes the love of the Father for us? Which one? There's no other reason but God chose to love us. He decided to love us. He set His love upon sinners like us. I mean, it's, a, it's incredible love when you consider first the recipients of God's love were drawn out of the world. Secondly, the second reason His love is incredible and indescribable is, let's look at it, the result of God's love. The result of God's love. Look at your text. It's a good, good practice at biblical interpretation of this common verse. Let's try to find the result or what, what, is, what happened. Because of God's love, something happens in John 3.16. Let's see if you can find it as I read. The result of God's love. For God so loved the world that He... The result of His love. For God so loved the world that He gave... The result of God's love was, and we can learn from this, action. Action. He gave. Is real love just an attitude or a feeling? I'm not saying that real love isn't accompanied by attitudes and feelings, but love, love of the Father, the love that we have as believers is stretching oneself, stretching oneself for others at great cost to ourselves. That's what it is. The problem is we typically have a mushy, sentimental, sort of, kind of an emotional definition of love. There is emotion and love. There is feelings and love. But we've wrapped at our definition is the core of it are those feelings. We, so we have feelings towards certain people even in our own church because they're what? Lovable. They've triggered love. They've coerced our love. They've earned our love. It's not the love of God for us. The love of the Father is not like that at all. The Father loves by giving for our good at great cost to Himself. How great a cost? How great a cost? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. His one and only Son. Paul in Philippians 2 speaks of the Son of God who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. John writes in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. 
I, I, we don't have a conception of the prestige and the power and the glory and the, the intimate presence and love and self-contained glory of the triune God from eternity. And that the second person of the Trinity the laid aside His glory, veiled His glory, and came into the muck, into the mire of our darkness and our sin to come to redeem us and to rescue us. We don't get a picture of the cost of the giving of the love of God. The best picture I could think of was in John's own writings. Now listen, I don't want to lose you. John, in John chapter 12, verse 40. John, in the book of John, is quoting the book of Isaiah. And he's talking in, uh, he's quoting Isaiah 6, verse 10 in John 40. Isaiah 6, 10. But then John 41, John actually says about Isaiah, that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So somehow, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, was getting a glimpse into the heavenlies at the glory of the Son of God before he took upon flesh. And so if you want to get a picture for who was three cells in the womb of Mary. Listen to this and what He gave up. This speaks of the Son of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, that's the second person of the Trinity, according to John, sitting on a throne, Lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, that's Isaiah, then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He lived among the world. And I, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. That is the Christ, that is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity described in Isaiah chapter 6. This was His splendor. He let go of His splendor. He veiled His glory. He became a slave. He took upon this stuff. The weak flesh took upon flesh and He dwelt among us. Out of the ivory palaces into the muck and mire of a type of world where demons can invade children so that they seize and they froth at the mouth and they're thrown about with helpless moms and dads. He came into that darkness. And when he saw that demon-possessed child writhing all over the place, possessed by the darkness, he said, How long, O oh wicked and perverse generation, must I be among you? I must grow to the cross of Calvary 
And he began in earnest to predict his death, burial, and resurrection from about that point on. A helpless baby. That king upon the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 took upon flesh and was born in a cold barn because there was no room for him in the inn. He was placed in a feeding trough. This is cradle. He grew up. He obeyed his parents. He learned obedience. He learned the scriptures. He had an unexceptional family from a no-name town. He learned a trade, carpentry. His 401k is pathetic. In his itinerant ministry, he was not even having a place to lay his head. Right at the very beginning, it started out poorly. The virgin with birth and Joseph accused. Slander after slander. The scandal of his birth. He comes and starts his preaching ministry in Galilee. Preaches the best sermon ever preached in Isaiah 61. In his own hometown, who knew him for 30 years, ran him up to the edge of the cliff to throw him off the cliff. He was rejected in his own hometown. And his whole life was one of rejection. Slander after slander. John chapter 9 verse 16. He does not keep the Sabbath. He's a sinner. John chapter 9 verse 24. This man is a sinner. Mark 3 21. He's lost his senses. Matthew 27 verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Isaiah 53 verse 3. 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah, who spoke of him in Isaiah 6 in his glory, then speaks of him in his incarnation in Isaiah 53 and writes this, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He's one of those that you hide your face from. We did, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is the one who, as a baby, cooing in the manger, spitting up and crying because he's hungry, held the universe together by the word of his power. This is the one who said with Isaiah, the nations, behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket, as less than nothing. And yet he took upon flesh, he became a man, a real man, not Superman, a man, not only just a man, he became a nobody, he became a nothing, a nobody with nothing, in the world's eyes a complete loser. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And there's more. For Paul... In our scripture reading in Philippians 2 continues on. He says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so God the Father gave the Son and He came and He gave Him for one reason. He he was sent here to die as a sacrifice substitute for our sins. You say that's not in John 3.16. It is. I want you to look at your bulletin. 
Because in the con- remember it says, for God so loved the world. So there's a context. And so if you look at the first few verses above John 3.16, it says in John 3.14, leading up to John 3.16, as Moses in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Why? That He might be what? Lifted up upon, not a wooden pole. The serpent lifted up on a pole, but lifted up on a wooden cross. You know your Bibles, the serpent? The serpent of old, the cursed one, the emblem of Satan and sin itself? It's a serpent upon that pole because the sinless Son of God would become the curse of sin hung on that tree for us in our place. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son to be hung upon the tree to die for the world of sinners. What kind of love is that? Even death upon the cross. It's at the cross of Christ that we see the love of God most clearly. Listen carefully. You see, God is a God of love. God is also a perfect God of righteousness. There is no shadow, shifting shadow in Him. There's no darkness in all. He's perfectly holy and just and righteous. He can't be in the new heavens and the new earth with us with any sin left in us. And so, because we're so fallen, and so broken, and so corrupt from the inside, and every thought and intention of our heart is evil, there's no way we can dig ourselves out. God had to do something incredible. In order to be loving towards the people that from before times eternal, He chose unto glory in Christ, He's also just and holy, so the unthinkable had to be done. The second person of the Trinity had to take upon flesh and come in and watch this, live without sin, live a perfect righteous life for you in your place. And he had to go to the cross and he had to bear the mocking and the beating on his back and the thorns upon his head and the nails and the spikes in his hand and his feet. And all of that was just precursor for really the suffering of the cross of Calvary. Because on the cross of Calvary, the greatest suffering was when God the Father, in some mysterious way that I'm not going to pretend to try to explain today, turned His back upon the God-man. As all of the wrath of God the Father was poured out upon His Son in our place. And in His body, somehow, because He was a man, He could do it for us. And because He was God, He could finish it in six hours. But somehow, in six hours, whatever your hell would be like for all eternity, in six hours, He felt the punishment of that in your place. And he drank it all, the wrath of God down. And he said at the end, it is finished and he died in your place. And probably the, the line that best expresses the love that God has for me 
and for you that we celebrate in the greatest gift on Christmas Day is found if we would unpack the one line upon the cross of Calvary that Jesus uttered. When He said, not Father, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And part of the answer is because God loved us that much. He wanted many sons in glory. It's astounding. The depth of the love of God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Part of the answer is out of love for you and for me. How expensive was this gift then that God gave? Honestly. Stephen Sharnock, an old dead guy, a Puritan, said this. Stephen Sharnock, hang with me on this. Listen. It's about the gift of God. God granted, that's a gift, God granted sinners a more expensive goodness than that was laid out in creation. For it required that God must be made man. Eternity must suffer death. The Lord of angels must weep in a cradle. The creator of the world must hang like a slave. End quotes. The recipients of God's love the world. The result of God's love that He gave the gift of His Son. Finally, and we'll end with this. The response to God's love. Now listen. If this is true, then no response, indifference, going about your life is a response. It's a rejection. There is no middle ground. Kids, you don't wait until you're 22. Now, today is the day of your salvation. This Christ proved that His life was perfect and His death was sufficient for you and for me because what? He popped forth from the grave and He ever lives to intercede for us. He's alive and He's offering this 2,000 years later. This is real. This is live. The gift is here ready for the taking. You must respond. You must respond. You must respond to this. There's only one requirement. Look at the text. That's what I like to do. We're going to see if we can make three observations from this text. For God so loved the recipients, the world. And what did that trigger? What's the result of that love? That He gave His, own, his one and only Son so that whosoever, what's the response? Whosoever believes in the, in who? Jesus. 
Whoever believes in Him might not perish, but might have eternal life. There's only two options. If you will not believe in Jesus, you will perish. Now look at the text. How long is the life in this text? Eternal life. Therefore, because you're pretty good at sentence diagramming, how long is the death? The perishing. It's eternal. You will either, either pay for your own sins or you'll find a substitute who can do it eternally for you. There's one, and his name is Jesus. You've got to trust in him. You've got to put your faith in him. You've got to put all your confidence in him. That's what believing in him means. Now, whosoever... Okay, pick one that's right. Kids, listen up. Which one is right? Whosoever ignores will have everlasting life. Whosoever is indifferent will have everlasting life. Whosoever rejects will have everlasting life. Or whosoever tries really hard or whosoever is sincere. You like that one? Whosoever is working hard enough. Whosoever is baptized. Whosoever is religious. Whosoever attends church. Whosoever's mom played the organ for 90 years. What does the text say? What does it say? Kids, whosoever believes believes. Believing is when you stop doing and start trusting. You say, that's not in the text. It is. It's found in the Numbers passage in the context, verses 13 and 14. Let's remember, it's on the top part of your bulletin handout near the top of the page, verse 8 of Numbers 21. Listen to this. Here it is in the Old Testament. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, or like a pole, and it shall come that everyone, that is, everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will what? He will live. And so the Israelites were bitten by the poison of the serpents. That's a picture of us being bitten at birth, right? Or at conception by the poison of sin. We have death coursing through our veins. There is no antidote that we can find. I mean, we'd like to try to whip up an antidote. We'd like to climb to the highest mountain, drink the purest water, take some good vitamins. Do, do, do. People just want to do. They must have thought Moses was crazy. How are we going to look up at the very cursed thing that bit us and see it hanging on a pole and find life? But that's what he said because he was pointing forward to the cursed one who would hang upon a tree for our sins. And all the Israelites had to do was believe the word of God through Moses and Put their eyes up and look. And the text says they will live. And that is all you have to do today. You must simply look to Him. You must simply believe in Him. That you indeed have the poison of sin and the curse. And you deserve to be upon that tree. And you deserve eternal death. But God has found a way. 
And God has given a great gift, His own Son. And all you've got to do is toss aside all the good works. Toss aside the sincerity. Toss aside all the waiting. All the excuses. Anything that you can do, cast it aside. And with the empty hands of helpless faith, look unto Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm sinful. I need you. I receive you. I believe upon you. And the text says, you will have, not not eventually, you will have eternal life. You, at that moment today, you can pass out of death and into life. You can pass out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Today, you can know that you have eternal life. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9, but just as it is written, here's, what, here's what's in your future. Here's a good gift, eternal life. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. So I would say there's room at the cross. He's alive. Open it up. Receive the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And dear child of God who is just discouraged this Christmas, when you are tempted to doubt the love of God for you because of your circumstances and your scorpions and the snakes that you feel like you're handling, when you are tempted to not believe the last sermon that we heard about the good Heavenly Father we have, you just remember the cross of Calvary. You go back and you go to the cross of Calvary where He hung there in your place and conquered your death. You go there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And His name is Jesus. Father, thank You for this Christmas that we can reflect on John 3.16. Delight our hearts in the truth of Your great love for us demonstrated in the life and death and ongoing intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that He is home in heaven. He's prepared a place for us. We're thankful that the work that He started, He will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As we sing these last common songs, may we with an uncommon joy, having reflected upon the love of God in Christ, may we respond by singing from our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name.